Here at The Planning Podcast, we believe that half of financial literacy is about knowledge. Now that other half, now that's about lifestyle. It's the way you live. It's the way you move. So together, we are going to demystify this good old world of finance and wealth building through our intentional guests and dialogue. Make sure you subscribe, stay tuned, and of course, stay planning. What's happening, everyone? Isaac Cooper here for our first in-studio session with the Planning Podcast. We are here with Dr. Anthony C. Hood in the building. Make sure you subscribe. This is going to be a fantastic episode. And of course, stay planning. All right, good people. So whenever you are in the presence of someone extremely important with a great resume, you want to make sure that you articulate the positions, but also the authority and the type of presence they've been able to have. So real quick, I am just going to highlight a few aspects of Dr. Anthony C. Hood here. So if you could just forgive me. Um, So a few awards. Let's talk about this. Vulcan's Community Award, Community Game Changer Award, Alabama Power Company with the prestigious Power of Leadership Award. I'm not going to keep going there. Uh, Had a fireside chat with the CEO. Y'all see that right there? You know, when the three dots are like that, Apple phone. So with the CEO of Apple, Tim Cook, and just a, a, a major leader in the space of thinking, in a space of action. Um, and I thoroughly appreciate our relationship, brother. Glad to have you. Sure. Man. And let's jump into you. it. Let's jump into it. So our first in-studio session, we are here in Inslee, downtown Inslee, west side. This side. Okay. <laughs> It's a reflex. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. And so much is happening, right? Community development is an aspect of uh, any type of enrichment that happens within a community. You want some type of growth. Uh, but this location means something to you. Yeah. Talk yeah. to us about that. Yeah, man. So first and foremost, honor to be on your podcast, the planning podcast. Come on. Hashtag man. planning. Hashtag. Hashtag. <laughs> Um, and yeah, man, like, uh, so we're sitting right here on 19th Street in Inslee. Give you a little bit of background. Mm. My mom was born on this street. Wow. Right down the street, right down from Carter Brothers Barbershop, like yeah. a block down with a Jehovah Witnesses place on the yeah. left. Yeah. That's where my mom used to live. It used to be like some little shotgun in her house. That's right exactly house. right. Yep. My yep. mama and her brother uh, used to live there. I was born on this street. At Community Hospital, aka Holy Family Hospital. Okay. Right on 19th Street. We lived on 20th Street where the brickyard was. Now, I used to think that we lived in the projects until right. I was like in high school and I, my mama heard me say, Yeah, man, we used to live in the brickyard. Mom was like, We did not live in the brickyard. <laughs> so the brickyard, you know, where we stay, we stay, you know what Green Acres is, right? That's right. Yep. It's like a little white building where they do auto mechanics. Yep. And it's like some little apartments right there. Right. That's where we used to live. But the the actual housing authority project used to be on three sides of us. Mm. So we lived in a unit where we were renting. And so it felt like a brick because it was brick, but it was single level and the other units was two levels. So I just assumed we lived in the brick yard. Right, right, right. Uh, but my mama had to correct yeah, me. So yeah, that's right. That's so, right. <laughs> but yeah, long story short, man, like this is my neighborhood. And I still technically live on the street because 19th Street turns into Bush Boulevard. Take you right to it. And that's the street I live on. Right. right. Uh, so I just feel very fortunate to be here, be in this place. Me and my grandma used to come to Kaiden's, and yeah. that's, that's where she used to get her Sunday go to meeting mm. uh, outfits. And I used to be playing around the store, hiding up under the cold. <laughs> she's whooped my butt because she'd be looking for me about 30 minutes. <laughs> but uh, man, just a lot of really, really fond memories. That's so, that's dope. That, that, you. <laughs> So with me being from Florida, y'all know I'm Jamaican by blood. And as I've been in Birmingham, as I've been able to learn more about the history, one thing that I appreciate about Dr. Hood and, and his journey is that there is a level of enlightening you'll be able to get because he stays proximate to the area in which he grew up. Um, can you tell us more about how this helped you transition into the professional arena? Some of the tools and characteristics you learned just growing up on the West Side. Yeah, man. So... Just real, I feel very fortunate of how I grew up. You know, when I was 
my, my mom and dad were were divorced. So my dad lived in Wyoming. My mom lived Rovin and Inslee. And then when we were six, we moved to Wyoming so that, you know, I could be closer to my father and my grandparents who all, you know, were, you know, were in Wyoming. And um, most everybody in that part of the neighborhood were like my friends. They were my cousins, yeah. and my uncles, my aunties. My, my dad lived right down the street from my grandparents. And so it was such a safe neighborhood. Yep. It was super blue collar. All the men worked at U.S. Steel. And mm-hmm. They were either coal miners or steel workers. Most of our grandparents, you know, our grandmothers, they were stay-at-home moms. So it was like it was always a meal cooked, mm. always stories on. Wow. I can go to anybody's house and go to sleep, <laughs> get something to eat. I get my butt whooped if I'm doing something wrong because you could not do anything wrong because everybody sat on their porch. Mm. And uh, community. Wow. it was community. Wow. And we didn't have a whole lot. Right. You know, my parents had a good job. My mom was a nurse at UAB. My dad worked at US Steel. So they made good money. I never wanted for any, anything. Right. I didn't always get everything I wanted, but. Right. I can, I can have some Jays and some Barclays. Yeah, that's right. Video games. <laughs> and when the Sega Genesis came out, I yes. had all that. But for the most part, like, we didn't have a whole lot, man, but we had each other. Mm. And everybody knew everybody. We had folks that was, you might have somebody that come up on your back porch, steal your, your lawnmower. Right. But you could get it eight hours later because they were going to go three streets over and try to sell it <laughs> to somebody. They'd be like, it's over here. You know, Sega Genesis over there trying to sell your lawnmower, right? <laughs> And so now the way that we live, we just don't, that, that sense of community, I feel like is lost. Right. And so right. for me, I think everything that I do, everything that I've done since I've been an adult is really trying to recreate the magic mm. of how I grew up. Mm. Again, we didn't have a whole lot. You know, most of the men had Cadillacs. You, know, you got to have Cadillacs. Come on, you ain't going to have nothing. You got to have your lap. You got to have your lap. <laughs> so I come from a long line of Cadillacs. <laughs> Cadillac and you got a house and ain't got to be a huge house or whatever, but we right. had each other. Yeah. Yeah. And now oftentimes the way we live, like we don't know our neighbors. Yep. You know what I mean? I can't walk down the street, get a cup of sugar or get some jelly because I got peanut butter, but I ain't got everything. <laughs> but I knew that I could get it from my neighbors. And right. now like sometimes you don't even want to go up on your neighbor porch because you don't want to be mistaken for somebody that's got, you know, bad intentions. Right. right. And uh and so I just want to recreate that. So yeah. for me, I've just always wanted to recruit more of my friends, my family, to come be my neighbors. Mm. And that's really kind of the thesis underlying everything that I do. Like, I don't want to always, when I hang out with my friends, I got to drive all the way to Alabaster. I got to drive all the way to Pinson. Right. I got to go out to Homewood and Hoover. Right, right. Greystone, all that kind of stuff. Cool neighborhoods, beautiful homes. Right. But, you know, if I'm sipping on a little bit, like, right, I don't right. want to have to drive all right now. I got to <laughs> go through two townships. I got to wonder, like, open people out. I got to worry about getting pulled over, right, something like that. Right. Like, I want to just have my drink. That's right. That's right. Cheers to that. Cheers. <laughs> walk down the street to my, my neighbor house, have a couple mm-hmm. drinks, and then walk back home. Mm-hmm. That's what I saw my my grandparents and my uncles do. That's what right. I saw my dad and his friends did. Right. And that's what I want. That sense of community is such a such a strong thesis. I, and, and to be honest, I actually recently had a meeting in Mountain Brook and um, I took an Uber. Yeah. I, I don't. Unfortunately, I did not want them to see a Jamaican flag and I take a wrong turn left or right. And, and, and again, they see me as a threat. Right. And so. And it's know, real. Right. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. Extremely real. Uh, if, if I could have put two seatbelts on, I would have. Right. And mm-hmm. so. Um, but. When you think about community and you think about those that you're proximate to, especially when you are intentional, because, again, we're, we're here in Birmingham, but the west side of Birmingham has not had the development that the Birmingham that is displayed nationally and internationally. So without that development, sometimes you may be ahead of the curve um, and you may be one of the first. Can you tell us about some of the perceptions of those that come into the community that, you know, the term that we use or you you may hear a good bit is gentrification, right? Okay. Now you have other individuals coming into the community and that may indicate, you know what? I see there may be some growth. There may be some transitioning happening there. What's your thoughts and premise around the term gentrification? And also when you see some of the development that's happening here on the West side, is there, do you see, I don't want to say the DNA of it, but is there any type of uh, uh, indicators that gentrification may be here 
as we as we speak. Yeah, so I appreciate you teeing it up. So I think it's important to kind of disentangle some of some of the aspects of what we typically refer to as gentrification. Right. So we are a part of town that has suffered from disinvestment. Mm. Where and this disinvestment is very nuanced. So number one, most of this community where we sit right here in 19th Street, Ansley in the commercial district, most of this was owned by white people at one point. Yeah. And one of the largest property owners on this street was Erskine Ramsey, yeah. of which I went to Ramsey High School and my mm-hmm. high school was named after Erskine Ramsey. He right. was businessman and a philanthropist. Right. Um and in the 10 story building, the Ramsey McCormick Ramsey building. Ramsey McCormick yeah. building yeah. and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Okay. So you had a sense where you had a lot of the community around here was owned by primarily white people, mm-hmm. particularly a lot of Italians, yep. Greeks, things like that. Right. And African Americans, black people could not live over here. Would you say the source of that came from the job opportunities from US Steel? Yes. So right over here where we sit, you know, a lot of folks worked over here. Right. And so you had slave labor over here. Mm-hmm. Um, you had convict leasing that happened right up the street. Mm. Convict leasing was another form of slavery where you had people that got uh, arrested on trumped up charges. Mm. You know, you looked a white woman directly in her eyes. Right. That was an offense that would land you in jail. Wow. Or if you didn't get off the sidewalk, if you encountered a white person mm. or vagrancy, mm. you could have just been posted up talking to your friends. But if you didn't have a job, right, then that was considered vagrancy yeah. and you could be sent to jail. Then you get hit with all these uh, court uh, charges. And if you couldn't pay those charges, then essentially you had to work that off and right. being able to work that off. The companies teach. CI, Tennessee Coal, and Iron, and other companies would then come and lease those convicts and be like, okay, well, we'll pay their charges if they come and work in these coal mines. Mm. And so that's how a lot of what we see around here was built. And then the extraction of that free or discounted labor that the people who were the convicts, if you will, right, never got compensated for. And then you take primarily black men out of the household. Mm. And so now we wonder why we have these issues about black men not being in the commu- in, in the household. Right. They were actually taken out of the household right. generations ago. Wow. 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 I'm getting all off the point. No, you all. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we lead up to the 50s and the 60s when you start, you know, sentiment started changing. Black people actually start gaining some income and some wealth. They began to move over in these parts of town. And then you had real estate agents that would say, hey, did you know that this black man, Isaac Cooper, just moved down the street from you? You know when black people move into your neighborhood, the property values go down. You might need to get out while you can. Can I interest you in a property over here in this area that is now over the mountain? Right. Homewood, Cooper, or what have you. (laughs) And so... A lot of these real estate agents, along with the mortgage brokers, stoked these fears. And the fears were already there, but they just played on the underlying fears that people had around. They just had not been proximate to people of color and people that did not look like them. Right. And so, yeah. Right. So that agent would make money off of getting you to sell your house. Yeah. And then they made money off selling you another house Mm. on the other side of town. Right. Right. That's what we refer to as white flight. So you start seeing that in the late 50s and all through the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. And in a matter of 10 to 15 years, the demographics of this side of town changed just like that. And I say this side of town, this happened all over the country. Right, right, right. From right. the mid 50s through the mid 70s. Right, right. Here's the thing that people don't talk about. After that, we start having black middle class flight. Those same early adopters, if you will, black people that moved into, for the first time, Bush Hills, for the first time, Inslee Highlands, for the first time right over here, they moved over here. They started moving up in their companies, starting their own companies. Then they didn't want to live next to their, next to their own neighbor. So let's, let's talk about that. So yeah. that's a good, that's a good point. We, the real estate agent comes in and says, all right, look, we got some black folks coming around here. You know your property about to drop, property value going to drop. We need you to transition. Then you have the space of the, we'll just, as you mentioned, the middle class, black, 
family that has more opportunities, all right, they're starting to make some money, and they say, okay, I want to build equity in this house. I want my house to appreciate. Yeah. So it's, it's tough, right? It's like tough. It, because if depreciation is not growing at a rate, maybe you even depreciate that, on the west side. Right. But you see appreciation on in Homewood, Hoover, and all these other places. And and and, and then part of the, the questions, and, and we can get this deep, y'all, because we live on the west side. So it, it, there's no question <laughs> about our commitment. But then you have the space of school system. So tell us, tell us how, how you feel like this has impacted the school system in the areas in which white flight occurred and how the current state of it is today. Yeah, so I think you had that black middle class flight where a lot of their, their kids oftentimes may have been the cream of the crop. Yep. Because their yep. parents could afford to give them extra training, send them to summer point. school. That's a great point. Again, going back to how I grew up, my grandmama was always at home. So when I got off the school bus, I couldn't just drop my book bag and go play. Right. Like, no, you're going to sit at that table right. and do your homework. Right. And then after you finish your homework, then you can go play. In the summertime, my grandma would get me up at 730 because she did not want me to get accustomed to sleeping in. Mm. So she would make me get up at 730, eat breakfast, sit at that kitchen table until noon, and I would be doing work. My mom and my grandma would always get the school books for the next school year, the previous summer. So if I'm going to fourth grade, they would get all the fourth grade books and I would do all the fourth grade work during the summer so that when I started fourth, fourth grade, I was right. ahead. Right, right, That right. was summer school for me. Yeah, that's I had to do hashtag that. Plenty. Hashtag planning. <laughs> I had to do that every day during the summer. Now at noon, I could go play. Right, right. Whereas my friends would sleep in, then they'd be riding their bikes all morning. They would come by and knock them. Just who can Anthony come out and play? Uh, a little later on, Anthony got something right, to do right now. Right, 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 right. That's true. fast forward. This same thing happens with this middle class population of black people, and then the the performance of the school are not there. And then you got performance of the schools over the mountain were better. Yeah. So they had to make a decision. Right. Do I send my kid to a private school like a Holy Family, like a our Lady of Fatima, like a John Carroll, like all these different options and stay here and do private school or do I took that private school money and put it into a mortgage so they can go to a high performing public school over the mountain. Right. And at that point, it just becomes an economic exercise. Right. Right. And it's an right. economic exercise that happens to this day. Right. Right. And it, and it two things that I want to mention and I want to talk about even in that same breath, and we're going to use the same scenario when, when we talk about access to capital. Um, but one thing I definitely want to highlight just with your example, when I think about the power of family, yeah, you know, the power of community, that the educational experience, fantastic within whatever school, elementary school, middle school, high school, but the foundation is at home. Right. And, and and that's and that's an amazing foundation because you've been able to leverage your experience from elementary school, high school and college. And, and, and again, we'll get into more of what you built in your vision for the future. But just the power of community, the power of home, the power of communication, the power of standards. Right. And I, I just love that with grandma. Like, y'all, y'all that's cool. But, you know, you got to get that work done, sir. Um, so. Let's continue on the thought with this, with the transition of the black middle class. And as you mentioned, that's not talked about, right? Like that, that aspect of history is not discussed. Because we got to own that. Yeah. And our folks don't like to own that. It's so mm -hmm. simple to say, oh man, everything would have been better if the white folks hadn't got scared and left. You know, but when we got to own, yeah, some of y'all mom and daddy, <laughs> had the same fears right and made the same economic calculations right and they moved right so while we putting all the burden and all the onus on one group right we also have to address the other group yeah. and how do we redress that right you know what i mean how do we repair that right and so we repair that by now we have to now reinvest in these same communities that we fled from yep and when i say we and I'm talking about our folks. Right. The same folks that fled from the communities 
we now that we've gone out, we've made whatever we're going to make. Now, how do you reinvest those same profits and wealth back into the same communities that you came from? We got to stop being afraid of our own people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what it comes down to. Yep. I have folks all the time like, man, I can't believe you still stay over there on the west side, man. You don't, you don't be scared? Like, why don't be scared of my own people? Right. Are you scared of your own people? Are right. you scared of me? Right. Because I live it now, but right. you good. Right. Oh, but, you know, mm-hmm. old boy across the street. Right. He's not good. Right. And so when we get to a place where we're afraid of our own people, man, like we can't even look ourselves in the mirror. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, and again, I also have to balance that out with people have the choice to live wherever they want right. to live. That's right. People got to make decisions about where they want to educate their kids. That's right. And I'll be the first one to say, I reserve the right to change my mind. And there may come a time where, you know, my kids are in fifth and seventh grade. Right. Right. And although I went to Ramsey High School and had a wonderful education at Ramsey, that may not be the best option for my girls. Right. So I may decide that I want to move to Homewood for the benefit of my kids. Or I may want to send my kids to private school instead of a public school. Right. We haven't made a decision yet, but it's certainly economic calculation. When I look at the private schools around town, I'm talking eighteen, twenty thousand dollars per child per year. So when I do the calculation, do I spend thirty to fifty thousand dollars for my kids to go to high school, private high school, or do I have to take that same thirty to fifty thousand dollars and put it into a mortgage? Sure. Now I can count real good. <laughs> and when I carry the three divided by two, like <laughs> man. So I get it. Right. I, I really that's do right. get it. That's right. Um, and so that's kind of the tension that I have. Yeah. Yeah. So for those people who don't have that calculus of kids, because mm-hmm. a lot of that it just breaks down on education. Uh-huh. But if I'm an empty nester, mm. or if I just got, you know, just I'm a single person. Or I'm married, but I don't have kids yet. Why not invest in these communities? Yeah. Especially if this is where you grew up. Right. Even the people that have gone off and moved somewhere else, you invested in all these other things. Buy that house next to your grandma. That's right. That's right. You can, That's right. You can still buy houses on the west side for less than twenty five thousand dollars. Yep. Yeah. And people out here driving sixty thousand dollar cars. Yeah. <laughs> you could have bought two. You could have bought. You literally could have bought the whole block. Uh huh. You could have got two lots from the land bank and them two houses next to your grandma that your grandma always complained about. Yeah. And city need to come out here and cut this grass. City don't never do. Okay. Well, why don't you buy the lots and you keep it cut? Because right. ultimately, going back to what you said earlier, we know that investment is coming. Yes. We know what happened in Avondale. Right. We know what's happening in Woodlawn. Yeah. We know what's happening in North Birmingham and all these different places. All these places are now people are getting priced out. Right. East Lake, Roebuck. Right. It's only it's inevitable it's coming that this way. development is coming west of 65. Yeah. You see it. Especially the folks that travel. Yeah. The folks that have <laughs> lived in Atlanta, they have lived in Nashville, they live in North Carolina when they say, like, man, I remember when I went to Tennessee State and I went to Tennessee State. Okay. I remember when there was the projects right behind campus. And now them same Shotgun houses, them people done put another level on top of the shotgun houses. <laughs> <laughs> and now these houses set up for three fifty, four fifty, five fifty mm. that you could have bought for fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah. yeah. You seen it. You know it's gonna happen here, but then when our folks don't invest, and then somebody else that doesn't have natural connection to the here we go. invest, guys gentrification. Oh, here we go. <laughs> They just bought all the property. The mayor, the mayor just engaged them for the yeah. property. Right, right. You could have bought this stuff 10, 15 years That's ago. right. That's right. That's right. You did. Mm. So that's why the efforts that I have with Inhabit Beham, hashtag Inhabit Beham, yeah. I have really just been kind of just sticking it to my friends. Because I've been talking about this. My friends will tell you, I've been talking about this for at least 15 years. Yeah. At least 15 years. I moved to Bush Boulevard in 2004. Mm. And ever since 2004, I've been trying to get people to come and live next to me and be my neighbor. So, so tell us, tell us about Inhabit Be Him because I, I think when, to your point, when we think about community development, community investment, you know, there's the the natural trepidation of just not being proximate, right? But then there's the some of the excuses that you know are are warranted. Oh, well, I don't I don't know what's going on there. Who lives in that house? There, there's just so much. Um, 
there isn't enough infrastructure for me to be able to know more about the community. Tell us how Inhabit was able to step in that space specifically around Westside. Yeah. So first and foremost, I really just wanted to raise people awareness of the quality of the housing stock that was over there. Yeah. Because there are a lot of people that just heard Westside and they think Westside equals crime. Westside equals blight and dilapidated houses. Westside equals not high, low performing schools. Right. And I just wanted to get people like, man, have you ever actually been over here? That's right. That's exactly right. I will go to other people. People that invite me to different things. I go to their house. I'm like, this is the same houses two two blocks down from me. It's the exact same setup, exact same structure. And then you do the research. It was the exact same builders. Right. They built the house in Crestwood or built the house in Highland Park and Forest Park. Look at my face. <laughs> <laughs> the same right. house. Right. So if it's the same house that you just bought in Crestwood mm-hmm. for three hundred seventy-five thousand. What if I told you you can buy that same house for 13? <laughs> now you might you might want to go in there and put another 60,000 in. That's right, that's right. You still ain't out of 100. Right. That's a third of what you're gonna pay over there. Sure. So to me, I ain't the smartest dude in the world. But I'm like, why does it make sense to go and pay 10 times the amount over here as what you could buy over here? So, and habit just started off being something just to raise people awareness. It was also help people understand there are a lot of properties over here that you can buy. They just might not be in the MLS. They're not listed with a real estate agent. Your partner, DA, Mm -hmm. uh, was telling me about a house on his block that had been empty for 40 years. It never hit the market. It was never for sale. But somebody at some point engaged, found out who the owner was and said, Hey, what are you going to do with this property? Yep. And then you're able to buy it. So in habit, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go block by block, house by house, and I'm going to build a database of every property in this neighborhood mm. so that the people that I actually I do get to come over here, they be like, man, I love your house. It's beautiful. It's got all this character. I'm moving over here. Yeah. Because that's what happened. Yeah. I would, my, my, my wife and I would invite people over to our house. They'd be like, Man, I love your house. I love this whole neighborhood. It's a hidden secret. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's hidden right in plain sight. <laughs> <laughs> we had to put a gate around it or nothing, right? All you had to do was drive down That's the street. Right. So they see me like, I'm moving over here. They would get, get with a real estate agent. A real estate agent would be like, okay, there's two houses for sale in the neighborhood. And I know for a fact, it's dozens of houses that are empty, vacant. Some of them were blinded. Somebody need to come buy them. Right created a database, and now I can take it to people and be like, all right, pick one of these houses. Matter of fact, I'm going to get in contact with the owner, find out how much they want to sell it for, hook you up with them so that you can buy it, fix it up, sell it, and now you're creating wealth. So instead of you going and buying this $375,000 in Crestwood, and you got another $75,000 student loans that you're struggling with, and you got this $70,000 car note because you're trying to keep up with the Joneses of everybody else that's living in Crestwood, you can't be driving them less than what they drive. Mm-hmm. I'm saving you money, and I'm helping you build your network, and I'm helping you create wealth by coming over here. So if you're only paying, you pay cash for the house, most of my friends can pay $15,000 cash for a house. Yeah. yeah. You can pay cash for the house, go get a home equity line of credit, yeah. tap into the equity that's in the house, okay. fix it up, make it how you want. Mm-hmm. Now you can use the difference between what you was going to be paying and what you are paying, yeah. pay off your student loans, pay off your credit card debt. Maybe you and your partner can live off one income, yeah. like me and my wife have done for the last 10 years. Again, going back to how I was raised. Mm. Well, my kids... My kids ain't got to ride the bus because my wife dropped my kid. Or uh, sometimes I drop them off at school right. when we were at school. Drop them off. She can be involved in the PTA. She can volunteer up there. She can engage with the teachers. She pick them up, help them with their homework. Right. In the summertime, they sit at the kitchen table, do their work. Right. She got time to investigate summer programs at Alabama School of Fine Arts, Breakthrough Birmingham, Birmingham Education Foundation. She has the flexibility to be able to invest in my kids. Right. Shout out wifey real quick. Yeah. Shout, shout out, shout out Robin. wifey. Yeah. Robin Hood. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, man. Hall of Famer Deion Sanders says, if you look good, you play good. 
Here at The Planning Podcast, we believe that proper money management is important. And we also know that being financially fit represents the way in which you live. Now, just by listening to this podcast, you are part of the movement. And one of the most critical aspects of this is the way in which we spell planning. The A is replaced with the delta sign. And those that are familiar with mathematics, delta represents change. A very consistent theme that we noticed that regardless of the objective, big or small, if you want any change to occur for the better, you're going to have to start planning. Be sure to check out our merchandise at www.stayplanning.com, S-T-A-Y-P-L-A-N-N-I-N-G. We'll see you there. doing is running the same play that I saw 45 years ago when I was growing up. Yeah. It's the same play. The power of family, the power of community. I'm going to just keep going back to that. But there's two things that I thought about on how perception could impact your pockets in your purpose. Oh, say more about that. So one's perception of a particular neighborhood could deter them for their, from their purpose, which could ultimately hit their pockets. Right. Mm -hmm. And with me not being from Birmingham, I remember when I moved out, my wife and I, we moved out in Wild. We got married August 29th. I think we moved into the house August 28th. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I think I think you helped me move. Matter of fact, but um, (laughs) we um, and I never forget the way in which people would react when I told them where we live. Oh, we we in Wild. Really? Yeah. Man, how is it? I'm like, I actually. You know, no not to Hoover, but I am more comfortable on the west side going to the gas station, traveling to now, you know, of course there is food deserts, right? Like mm-hmm. we do gotta go all the way to Hewitt Town to get Walmart and Audi and all that good jazz. But uh at the end of the day, I'm more comfortable because I'm around a community, right? And the the people care, right? Folks don't wake up and want to cause issues and 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 you know frustrations and it, it, it that's that's not it right and and so it's I'm, I'm very appreciative that you know we've been able to come into Birmingham meet with folks like yourself become friends and and pretty much family to make sure that we know that the true heartbeat of Birmingham is in its people and not in the perception of Birmingham right yeah. so um so let's 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 talk about Dr. Hood Dr. Anthony C Hood. Get it right. Let's talk about your professional journey. So the doctor, of course, you know, I, I like to say Mr. Professor every time I see him. Mm-hmm. There is a, a space in which you played a role at UAB. Tell us about how your uh, experience here in Birmingham impacted the way in which you educated some of the students you were able to encounter. Yeah. I, um, so when I was at UAB, my I taught entrepreneurship and strategic management. That's what my PhD is in. Mm-hmm. Did my PhD at Alabama for all time. That's the other reflex. Yeah. Alabama for all time. Westside best. Side. Yeah, that's, that's it. Um, but I taught entrepreneurship and strategy. But I taught it from a perspective of, you know, I got three degrees in business, mm. and very few, if any, of my professors actually took me out into the community. Wow. I got a lot, I got really good education, I got really good training, but it was always trained from, okay, let's look in the back of your book and let's do a case on Walmart or Costco or Facebook or you name the company that I actually don't have a personal connection with. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why is nobody actually doing, you know, can we do a case on Alabama Power, mm-hmm. on Regions, you know, on, you know, U.S. Steel, you know, right, something right. that's a little bit more proximate right. to me and then actually take me out into the community right. so I can meet some executives yeah. in the community, people right. who are actually doing strategy, people who are actually doing entrepreneurship. Right. So for me, my perspective was if I'm teaching entrepreneurship, I don't even want to meet on campus. <laughs> Let's meet at Innovation Depot. Every time I called up Mr. Sperling yeah. here where we are on 19th Street, he's like, Mr. Sperling, I got some students. I want to bring them and and show them what you're doing over there like yeah man bring them on yeah so i'm leveraging my connections and my relationships to Mm -hmm. bring people in so they can sit at a boardroom actually see strategy in action 
Let's see entrepreneurship in action, taking them to pitch competitions, bringing them around bankers. You've come to my class yeah. every year <laughs> and you kind of lay down like, you know, this is what finance actually looks like in the real world. This is what you should be doing right now right. to prepare yourself for whatever it is that's coming next. Right. And so that's why I always got really good marks. I didn't always get perfect marks. The students that appreciated the experiential learning always got marks off the chain. Mm. But I got bad marks from students that they were just accustomed to, well, he made us go out into the community <laughs> and I had to get in my car and drive somewhere. <laughs> and I was expecting a, a multiple choice test and he actually made me do, you know. Please let me, let me womp womp real quick in that moment. I'm sorry, the student, but you got to womp womp. I'll give you donkey any day, but I'm not the breakfast kid. Yeah. You know, so, but the vast majority of the students really right. appreciate right. it. Right, right, right. And right. a lot of those who got jobs out of it. Because invariably, somebody be like, hey man, I really like, I really like Sarah, or I really yeah. like Robert. Yeah. Like, put me in contact with him. Put me in contact with her. Right. And uh, that was, that, that's what I really loved about what I did in the classroom. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the that's the type of exposure that, you know, if, if I'm a student, there's the balance of the education that I will be able to apply, but the exposure is going to trigger the appetite for the education, right? Like mm -hmm. I want to be able to see this so when I'm be, when I'm being taught on this particular skill, subject, strategy or whatever it may be, I can see how I'll be able to apply it. And so my senses, while I'm being taught, this is like, okay, this is this is good, right? And and unless you um, unless you grow up in an environment in which the accolades are more tied to just take this test, right? Mm -hmm. You know, finish this exam, write this report, versus being able to apply some of your discernment, some of your ability to be able to prioritize and all right, let me think about it this way, apply some creativity and 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 just be an incubator of yourself, right? And and um and so I, I know in times in which I've spoken to the class, I was like, look, y'all, if I hey, I wish I was, I'm gonna go back to school and <laughs> just so I can take this class. Um talk to us about you know the some of the leadership positions that you had at UAB. And one thing I want to transition to um you know they I think I heard it the other day and I said, you know, you're paid off, you're not paid off what you're worth, you're paid off what you negotiate. Right. Mm. And um, and part of that, there is a brand component and we'll get into it, but tell us about some of your leadership positions at UAB, what you were able to do, leave a stamp on and, and, and tell us what you're doing today. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I was very fortunate. I started at UAB in 2011 and in 2017, I earned tenure. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a black professor, y'all, <laughs> FYI, if you're not able to see the video. Here's the thing that's important about that. So organization called the PhD Project was started back in 1994 by KPMG, one of the, the big four accounting firms. Yep. They started the organization because they were interested in driving more diversity in business. Okay. They realized in order for us to drive more diversity in business, particularly around how do we get more African-American, Hispanic-American, Native American people to particularly get master's degrees and graduate degrees in business, the way that we do that, we actually have to start with the business schools. Because as an African-American, Hispanic-American, Native American, if you never see anybody that looks like you in front of the classroom, mm. what impact does that, number one, have on your propensity to actually finish undergrad? Who's going to be investing in you? Who's your role model? Who's going to help you navigate? Who's going to take you out into the community and connect you with that executive so that you can get that summer internship that's going to lead to you know, a full-time position. Right. And then who's going to help you navigate that? That's right. Okay? That's exactly So their right. theory of change is if we get more people of color in front of the classroom, we're going to get not only more people who matriculate through undergrad in business, but they're also want to go on and get graduate degrees. Right. MBAs, Master of Science, Master of Accounting, things like that. And maybe they'll go and get PhDs. Right. That's how I left my job when I was at I was at AT and T and Bell South for ten years as an engineer. Mm. But I came across a PhD project because I had a black faculty member, George Monkers at UAB. Shout out George! Shout out Dr. Monkers, <laughs> George Monkers the third. And I went to him because I was an entrepreneur. I was flipping houses. This was around 2006, 2007 when the market was red hot. Mm. I had about nineteen properties. <laughs> I was killing the game. Talk I was to like, me. <laughs> 
man, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> that's right. Part two. Part two. I got to the place where my job at AT&T was getting in the way of me <laughs> flipping houses. Because I was a landlord and I'm buying a house. So I was like, I'm probably to come on the market. And I got a meeting at work. And I'm trying to get out of a meeting at work. So I go look at this house so I can figure out if I'm going to put in an offer on it. Right. And I got to the place like, you know what? This is killing me. I probably need to pick. And I was like, you know what? I just need to be a full-time entrepreneur. Like, it's been a good ride, yeah. but I'm finna go for it. Yeah. So I went to Dr. Monkus. I was like, Dr. Monkus, like, I'm thinking about leaving my job, you know, going ahead and be a full-time entrepreneur, just trying to get some advice. He's like, young man, you ever thought about getting your PhD in business <laughs> and being a professor? I'm like, heck no. No. Teachers don't make no money. <laughs> <laughs> like, how about you getting it? Right. <laughs> And enjoying it. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, man, I, I really think you got what it takes to to be a professor. And I think you should consider it. Mm-hmm. He was like, I want to tell you about this organization called PhD Project. You know what I mean? They got an annual conference. You know, you ought to go and check it out. So I did. Went to the conference. And, like, just light bulbs went off of me. I was like, I can be a full-time entrepreneur flipping houses. And I can yeah. be a professor of entrepreneurship. So I can learn how to do research on entrepreneurship. I can teach entrepreneurship. And I can do it from a place of, I know how this works because I'm actually doing it. Right. I'm actually going to the bank and getting loans and putting together capital stacks and that kind of stuff. Right, right, right. Because my professors had never actually done it. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. I'm already looking at them at the side. I'm like, right. oh, you trying to teach me something you ain't never actually done. That's right. That's- it's, it's and I'm, te- I'm teaching you how it's done. Right? Right? That's yeah. right. It's so funny you mentioned that. I, I'm going a, I'm to a segue. I'm going to actually mention quickly the coaches that I would always side-eye. <laughs> coach. Right. Coach. Right. Coach. Uh-huh. And I'm going to shout out Coach Sam Shade. Coach Shade will be out there. Uh, Sam, my boy. The man, look. <laughs> Coach has some tennis shoes on. I'm like, okay, coach, I see the back pedal. You still got right. Like you see it. Right. And you can see his film. You've done this before, right? right? And so when you articulate the directions and the steps and the movement, body movement, I can respect the words, right? But if you know, so you you never play football? All right. So let me go get on YouTube. Um, (laughs) but funny enough, you mentioned about being able to uh, the students being able to see the teacher and see themselves in the teacher. Yeah. Um, so I, I started, I actually ended up starting the uh, first Black Alumni Association in school history at Sanford University. 50 plus years ago, they wouldn't even accept Black folks. Um, but it was on that same preference. Uh, football ended, if it was up to me, I'll still be playing ball. Yeah, y'all, I, cleats in the trunk. I just raced a little 13 foot. I'm with it, right? Like, mm-hmm. come on with it. Um, Nothing to brag about, to be honest. But the the issue I dealt with was all right. Um, Sanford is a majority; it's a private private white institution, uh, a PWI. Um, not too many folks here look like me, and I was looking for someone that looked like me that actually played football. That's wearing suits. I don't. I, I know about suiting up for football games, but I don't know about tying a tie. I don't know about this corporate. So I started asking questions. All right, who are some black? I was very specific. Who are some black cornerbacks okay. that are in Birmingham that I can connect with? So I, I want to learn about this space, but I need to speak to someone that looks like me that has some of the same characteristics, right? right? Because the, the, the power of a visual opens up the different type of opportunities just based off of a commonality before you even come, you know, you, right. you speak to each other. Because it would have been important even to talk to an offensive lineman, right? Right. There's right. nothing about that person that actually played your position. That's right. Because it's a fraternity, right? That's exactly right. It's a fraternity. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's the, it, it doesn't matter what school you went to. It doesn't matter what division. If I run across you and you play corner, man, what? It's just, it's a brotherhood because there's characteristics about the position that we can articulate yeah. based off of those responsibilities that allow us to be able to communicate in a way that we can be efficient and also effective with what we're talking about because we're, we're speaking the same language. And as you mentioned with the PhD project and as you were sharing that story, I, it, it, I'll be remiss to not mention just that, uh, why we even triggered that activity back in what, 2014? And now we're, you know, seven years later and it's still rolling, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and major impact. Um, and that's, that's huge, that's huge. So UAB, <sighs> I know you miss Dr. Anthony C. Hood. I know you miss him. Um, Dr. Hood ended up making a transition. Yeah. 
tell us about the position you're in today and you know the level of detail you're willing to share on on how it got there because i think a part of uh what you've been very intentional about which i appreciate and you know we talk about it often is content yeah. right to where we live in a world in which unless you provide the information that explains who you are, what you do, someone is going to provide their own information, right? And so social media is kind of like a hammer. You can use it to build or you can use it to break something, right? And, and so you've been very intentional on building um, just who you are, what you're doing, and, and, and documenting the type of impact that you're having in conversations and, and, and really the educational framework as well. So tell us about that transition from UAB and, and how you've been able to leverage your brand um, and expanding your network and, and so folks can know who you are. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the things I started doing around like a year or two before I went up for tenure, mm. I didn't know if I was going to get tenure or not. And I, I haven't talked about this much. I didn't know if I was, uh, was going to get tenure or not. And tenure is based on a committee of the other tenured faculty members. Really? I didn't know that. And they have to decide whether you are worthy of tenure. Yeah, I thought you. I thought it was just hey, you started on this day. You get nah, nah. You have to like submit that. a portfolio of your work, and then it's very subjective. And you know, there's some criteria, yeah. but even beyond that criteria, some subjectivity. So they could say, you know what, you can't be a part of our club. It's a very exclusive club. So going back to PhD project, there are very few people in this world with a PhD in business. Flat stuff. Yeah. No matter your. your race, gender, anything yeah, like that. You got that right. But then when you look at the amount of people of color, like I'm one of maybe only like a thousand black people in the world. That's that's with with a PhD in business. That's a fraction of a percent. That's rounding here. Right. Surrounding <laughs> here. Yeah. So to get yeah. promotion and tenure as a black man is a big deal. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, so, you know, I was able to get that, but I didn't know if I was going to get it. So in my mind, I'm thinking, how am I going to feed my family? Because if you don't get tenure, you essentially get one year to find a job somewhere else because you can't continue to work at this university. That's how that works. It's kind of like that in law firms too. When you make partner, yeah. you have like X number of years to produce enough billable hours. <laughs> and if not, you're going to have to find somewhere else to <laughs> same way in academia. So I didn't know if I was going to get tenure or not. So I'm like, okay, what is my plan B? So that's when I started being a lot more intentional about building my portfolio and then sharing what I was doing. Not only that, I was doing a lot of stuff in the community. So people were calling on me. I was doing a lot of speaking engagements and that kind of stuff. So I wanted to share, particularly with young people, like this is where I came. I came from Inslee. I came from Wildham. I didn't come from a whole lot, but here's where I am right now. And let me kind of demystify it for you so you'll know some of the steps that you could do mm. to do what I have done and more. Mm. That's how it started off. And the more I would post, the more people like, man, you blessed me or I shared this with my daughter. I shared this with my son. Can you do this more? And so that's how kind of how it started. So then I started getting a lot more intentional about setting up a camera and, and capturing what I was doing and stuff like that. Right. And I think that really helped me. So even once I got tenure, I just kept it going. And then all these other opportunities started coming at me. Other universities started kind of hollering at me like, yeah, how, how's UAB treating you? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so, you know, in academic terms, it's kind of like, you know, like like when we used, when we used to be back in the streets. Uh-huh. And you holler at a young lady like, oh, you know, I, I, got, a, I got a man like, well, how are you treating you? That's <laughs> in academia. Come on down. They won't just come out and be like, hey man, we want you to come work for them. Right. They'll be like, how's everything going? <laughs> oh, it's not? Oh, okay. okay. Well, you know, we uh, uh -huh. we got some possibilities over here. Right. So I started getting in a lot more. The more and more I would post. And then, you know, that, that's kind of flattering. And uh, Yes, it is. And I think a lot of that, I talked about how I was passionate about community-based economic development. Yeah. Stuff I was doing in my neighborhood, trying to recreate what I was doing. And I think that led to me getting the job in the president's office at UAB. And shout out to Dr. Watts. Shout out to Dr. Watts. And yeah. Dr. Ari Jack, the dean of the School of Business. They yes, gave me an opportunity mm. to be director of civic innovation. Civic innovation is essentially all the stuff you see me doing, that's civic innovation. Right. It's right. how do we make our city the premier 
place in the world yeah. for people to live, work, learn, play, and serve. Right, right. And that's what I got an opportunity to do from 2018 until just a couple months ago when the opportunity at First Horizon came up. Mm. Um, and I think building that platform, yeah. showing my portfolio, I didn't have to spend a lot of time filling out a resume and kind of yeah. proving what I did. It's right. kind of like, it's not an arrogant statement. Right. Just Google me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's what yeah. I tell people. People right. are like, man, can you help me, uh, you know, rewrite my resume? No, I can't. I hate resumes. Right. I think resumes are useless. That's I really true. believe that in my heart. Yeah. Yeah. I know a lot of companies still require them, mm-hmm. my company included. Mm-hmm. But resumes are really useless. Yeah. What's more important than a resume is your portfolio. Portfolio. Right. Yeah. And our digital platform, our digital portfolio, LinkedIn. Yeah. Your your uh your personal website, all yeah. those things are your portfolio. Right. right. So all you gotta do is Google Isaac M. Cooper. Got that right. That's all you need to know. Yep. Yeah. You can sit there for the next six hours and just like <laughs> consume all the content, like, okay. Yeah. I yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. You Google Anthony C. Hood. Yeah. Because <laughs> again, there's a lot of Anthony Hoods out there. Mm. There's only one Anthony C. Hood. You better tell you better talk. It's a lot of Isaac Coopers out there. It's only one Isaac M. Cooper. Come on now. It's only one IMC. <laughs> Financial. That's right. That's so when right. you Google IMC or Isaac M. Cooper, you right. get to the meat of it. Right. Because that's your brand. That's right. Mm-hmm. Anthony C. Hood is my brand. Right. right. So when you go, you see everything that you need to know. You can evaluate me before we ever have a conversation. Mm. And by the time we sit down, it's like, so what we talk about? Right. That's right. Now we're just going to negotiate. <laughs> my value is clear. I don't have to spend a lot of time on my value. That's, but again, this is, not a, this is not a statement nope. of arrogance. Nope. nope. It just is. You right. see what I can do. Right. Right. Now let's talk about how the value that I can bring can create value specifically for whatever it is that you're doing. Right. right. So speaking engagement, it's working for your company, serving on your nonprofit board. That's where we that's where we have to get people to. Right. And you and I, we share that kinship around we understand the power of a brand. Yeah. Yeah. Because we see what companies do, right? That's right. All the companies that we deal with, yeah. they spend a lot of time, effort, and resources. Uh, not only building a brand, but protecting that brand. Yeah, so you got, man. And, you know, especially for our professional athletes, we work with professional athletes, uh, basketball players, NFL players. And one of the takeaways that I have with you sharing that story was your intentionality to say, okay, if I need to develop another option, let me start articulating and sharing some of the vision that I see some of the work that I've done so others will know how to receive me, right? Just in case there's a transition. Yeah. And, it's, and it's that same space. We share this with our athletes all the time. Like, yo, the, the NFL is not a career. NBA is not a career. It's an experience. And experience has a start time and an end time. You go to a concert, they're not going to, you know, there's going to be a start time on the ticket. By the end time, they go a little bit later, depending on who the artist is, right? Or they may show up a little late. But at some point, you're going to have to leave that venue, right? At mm-hmm. some point, you're going to have to leave that stadium, right? And, and so, like, what skills, what, in which ways are you building yourself to where when people sit down with you, you don't have to explain your conviction, yeah. right? Like, you don't have to validate your conviction. It's validated in the work. Now, let's, what are we talking about? What are you looking to get accomplished? Because I know what type of value I can bring to your organization. So now we just got to see their synergy, right? On principles and, and, and the purpose moving forward. So that so powerful, y'all. There's so much that we are going to unpack. We may have a part <laughs> two and three. We may just do something every week. Um, before we finish up, uh, every question we ask our guests and, and those that know this that are subscribed, make sure you share with this being the planning podcast. And so intentionally, we spelled planning pl with the delta sign to substitute the a mm. and and ing mm. in mathematics the delta represents change, change. Mm-hmm. so we feel like anything that is significant that happens in life the foundation of that is through planning mm. right and mm. so can you share with us an example or a story in which planning was able to reflect the change or the improvement or uh, or even, you know, show some uh, some assets in your journey in your life. Yeah, man. Uh, oh, that's a good question. Um, man, I've been on a 10 year journey. This might be a whole other podcast. Like this 10 year journey to 
kind of rebuild my finance. So I mentioned early in the podcast, like I was hot and heavy in real estate. Everything was going well until 2008. Mm. <laughs> Everybody felt that now. Yeah. Jeez. So the market crashed. I got all of these properties that's in different stages of development. I got some properties I'm renting, some properties I'm developing, properties I was renting. My tenants could not afford to pay me anymore, even though there weren't rent moratoriums at the time like we have now. Oh, boy. Regardless, if they can't afford to pay, they can't afford they to can't pay, afford to which pay. means if I got loans on these. You, you better make that payment. And in 2008 is when I left AT&T to start working on my PhD. So I left a six-figure position to go be a broke college student based on the plans I had made for the real estate, but it was based on the market economics for 2006, 2007. To continue. But then we had an economic shock that nobody could have foreseen, but I probably should have foreseen it because everybody named Mama was getting the real estate. <laughs> and I'm like, we run running people at the grocery store, like, yeah, man, you know, I'm flipping house. And I'm like, huh? You flipping house? Right. <laughs> um, that's right so i should have known that the market was too you know it was too red hot it was too overinflated you yeah. had a liar loss and all kind of stuff yeah long story short i took a bath i ended up having to i ended up having to uh to declare bankruptcy mm. on over half a million dollars worth of loans which probably wow. represented seven eight hundred thousand dollars worth of property right right Right. Gone. Wow. And so now I have, and so my bankruptcy was finalized in 2010. Mm -hmm. And so now for the last 11 years, I have been slowly and methodically building back my finances. Yeah. Building back my credit. Right. And start trying to build back my real estate portfolio. Yeah. yeah. And so now it's, I, I will never get over levered. Over leverage, right. like I did then. Yeah. I didn't think I was over leveraged at the right. time, right. but in retrospect, I was over leveraged. Yeah. And so now, I'm kind of like like Mr. Spurling. Mr. Spurling tell you like I can't pay cash for it all by. Yeah. And so I learned that from him. <laughs> right. So now I got to save up some money, and then when I get enough money, I go buy some cash. Yeah. 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 And then I save up some more money, I go buy some else cash. And so now I'm just slowly methodically building back, and so now. My credit score is almost 800 now. So now I'm thinking about, okay, everybody's sending me these, you know, hey, we like to give you some money. That's right. <laughs> hey, you give you some money. And now I'm in banking. I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm telling everybody else, like, hey, come bank with us. I'm like, right. maybe I need to go out, but I'm going to do it a lot more intelligently now. So yeah. that's the plans that I'm making right now is how do I take maximal advantage of the opportunity that I have right now, working for a bank, being around bankers, and learning from them? Yeah. How do I build back better? Mm. And so now when I talk about my approach in the classroom, yeah, I can speak from a place of authenticity. Man, come on. You know, when I'm telling other entrepreneurship professors, like, if you ain't never lost a half a million dollars, what, what, what you want to tell these people? Right. So I can tell them about the highs of entrepreneurship right. and the lows of entrepreneurship. Mm. That means something. That means that means everything. You know, when the market tank, the reason why I had to file bankruptcy because I couldn't get access to capital like I was accustomed to them because banks you know, change their regulations, right. you know, and their appetite for making loans. Right. That's so right. now when I'm engaging with small business owners now, I understand right. the issues around access to capital and how they can stifle growth because capital is oxygen. And you cut off somebody's capital, you cut off their oxygen. And it's, it's inevitable what's going to happen to you if you don't have oxygen. That mean, oh, my goodness. Right? You see it every Man. day in your practice, right? That's it. That's it. That's it. That's, it. that's how you breathe. That, and that's, it's funny because budget is not a sexy term, but budget actually reflects the level of oxygen that you have to breathe, right? And staying within the budget allows you to breathe at a consistent uh, uh, level in which you can build on, right? Because if you're limited in your breath, then you're limited in your ability to operate, right? And so that that is an amazing analogy because that's it. You know, they used to say cash is king. I tell folks cash flow is king. Right. And so this is, oh, y'all, we, oh, look, 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 we're going to give it all to y'all right now. This, this is Dr. Hood. We are, no, Dr. Anthony C. Hood. We are thoroughly appreciative of you joining us today, especially for our first in-person studio 
Now y'all, I'm saying studio. We had office. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> First in person uh, studio interview on the planning podcast. This has been amazing. I know our audience will be able to take so much away from this. Uh, more importantly, I'm a priest of our friendship. I'm looking forward to seeing how that grows and continues. Family grows. Blessings to you and the fam. Thank you, brother. Look, how can how can we follow you? What's the best way to follow you? Anthony C. Hood. That's my brand. You can find me Anthony C. Hood everywhere. Bet. Hey, look, y'all. Y'all know what I'm going to say. I'm just going to keep that two words. Stay playing.